Hello, welcome to Head On History. I'm your host, Ali A. Alomi. Now, we're actually taking a break from our usual schedule with a special episode of Head On History. Uh, next week, we'll go back to our usual uploads, so we'll go back to the kind of rhythm of things and the, the narrative that we've been building. Um, but I, you know, I wanted to kind of interject here with a special episode that we recorded just today, um, really dealing with the kind of current events. And I'm going to try to do this every once in a while, that in addition to doing our usual kind of history, that I will introduce some special episodes that will deal with current events and current affairs and trying to put them in historical context. I'll also try to bring you some interviews with some fantastic historians and the work that they're doing. Um, so let's look out for these special episodes of Head on History, what we'll call Head on History Specials. Um, we did it one uh, a few weeks ago during Charlottesville, and we're going to keep that, that going. If this breaks the flow for some of you, I do apologize, um, but hopefully you'll find this useful. Uh, let's get started. If you're interested in sending in comments or thoughts about this, you can do so via Twitter uh, or Instagram at A-A-O-L-O-M-I or, and or use the hashtag Head on History. So today, December 6, 2017, Donald Trump made an announcement officially recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Though this was a big deal and there was a lot of really tense responses as a result of it. This was huge news and it broke with kind of decades of foreign policy in which Jerusalem was claimed as the capital by Israel but the international community had not recognized it yet. Jerusalem is deeply contested, and East Jerusalem is part of the plan to be the capital of any Palestinian state. So all the kind of peace negotiations that are going on, Palestinians always see Jerusalem, specifically East Jerusalem, as part of their capital. By making this declaration, by saying Jerusalem undivided is the capital of Israel, he's really undone any kind of hope for the two-state solution. Uh, Erekat, who is the main negotiator, the peace negotiator for the Palestinians, and he's been working on the process for decades now, came out today and publicly said that with the declaration of Israel as the uh, capital, uh, or the declaration of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, that the two-state solution was done. For a lot of Middle East uh, analysts, they had already seen the two-state solution as really kind of dying out. But now, what happened is by declaring Jerusalem as as the capital, the kind of fiction of the two-state solution, or we should say the delay of the two-state solution, has come to an end. You, No one can claim the two-state solution anymore because Jerusalem's already been made capital. Well, what happens to the Palestinians? Are they not going to get East Jerusalem? Well, that's not an acceptable negotiation for them because the start is with uh, East Jerusalem. So this is a really complicated history. It deals with the two-state solution versus the kind of growing calls by a lot in the international community uh, for a one-state solution, maybe a binational state. This is all very complicated. And as a historian, I'm going to try to make some sense of this. We're... I'm not giving my opinion or, or ideas of what I think should be done with the uh, peace process in Israel and Palestine because, frankly, it's such a complicated issue that even I wouldn't know where to start. I don't have, uh, an, uh, you know, really 
something to say, be like, oh, we should support this or we should support that. Uh, so it's complicated. But what I can do is offer you a bit of analysis from history that hopefully will we'll both put the, what's going on in context, but also push us to recall some very important lessons from history. Keep watching this space because it's going to develop. This isn't just, oh, he announced Jerusalem as the capital and that's it, let's go. Eight countries, including our very own allies, the United Kingdom and France, have called for an immediate and emergency uh, meeting of the UN Security Council. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. And even though Jerusalem has been the de facto capital of Israel for a while, this symbolic move um, is going to really rustle some, ruffle some feathers. And there are already protests that are being planned. I know that on my campus, I saw students from both sides protesting um, in kind of a big way. And this is going to continue going forward. So as historians, the question is, what do we make of it? Well, history shows us that Jerusalem has a really complicated history. The fact is that it wasn't always as important or as central as we assume it is today. We try to, we keep treating Jerusalem as having some type of continuous history, that it's meant the same for thousands of years. It's been sacred for thousands of years, and it's always been the same, but that's not true. The history of Jerusalem waxes and wanes, and it's, it's really beautifully uh, integrated and, and rooted together and entangled. It's complicated. It's bloodied. So there's so much to it. Now, according to biblical history, this is where we'd have to turn to in order to really understand Jerusalem, because there's not a lot of uh, historical evidence for the early Jeru period in Jerusalem. But according to the biblical history, the Israelite people actually conquer the region around Jerusalem from the Canaanites. And supposedly, it was believed to be the promised land, the promised land that they received out of the exodus from Egypt. It was supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey. We do know from archaeological evidence that the other people did live there, that it wasn't just deserted land, that there were people called the Philistines and the Canaanites and a variety of different other people. If you've ever heard the story of David and Goliath, that in many ways reflects the, the diversity of the time. Uh, Goliath, the kind of giant, was uh, a Philistine, and the Philistines were likely a kind of seafaring people that, that you know were in the Mediterranean and had settled in uh, or the Levant, um, and encountered the the early Israelites. And so how does Jerusalem fit into the Levant? So we see that the early Israelites come out of Egypt and they settle in this land. They fight and conquer from the Canaanites and the Philistines this land. But where does Jerusalem fit into this? We, this we have to turn to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. And in it, it says, The Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. What this tells us is that even though the Israelites had arrived in the Levant, they had not created any significant temples. That the, the tabernacle, which was the vessel that contained the Ten Commandments, existed in a tent, and that tent moved from tribe to tribe. That the cities had varying uh, sacredness, and that wherever the tabernacle went is where sacredness and God resided, that there wasn't a singular city that was holy. It goes on to say, I will rise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as the mortals use, but I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul. Your house and your kingdom 
kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Now, this is in response to the fact that the Israelites called out and said, oh, we want a king. We need a leader. The, the old prophets are gone. Moses has died. We need a leader just in the same way that the Canaanites and the Philistines have. And so a ruler was appointed to them, uh, Saul, and Saul uh, became an issue. Saul became corrupt. And so God rose up two people, one, Nathan, who became the prophet of the Lord, and two, David, who would become the future king. So what happens is that David establishes Jerusalem as a political capital, but it's not necessarily a religious capital. Indeed, when we look at the archaeological evidence, north of uh, Jerusalem, there was a massive temple, and it was likely that temple that was the center of religious life in early Israelite religion. And indeed, it's also an indication that there were other deities with other temples in the region, that Asherah and El and Baal all had temples. Asherah's, te uh, you know, kind of symbol were two pillars that would be by the door. And those two pillars may have very likely also been found in the temple in Jerusalem, that, that those two pillars of Asherah were a common feature. And so sacredness was was complicated. It wasn't just Jerusalem at the time, but rather that Jerusalem was the political capital. And the reason it was the political capital was because it was right dead in the center between two kingdoms, between Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And so it almost acted like a, like a, a neutral zone that all the tribes could agree will meet in Jerusalem. So it was really just a matter of political negotiation more than it was sacred. And it isn't until Solomon, we believe in Solomon in the 9th century, who starts to consolidate power as a king. He's not just the, the first among a leader of uh, a series of tribal leaders. No, he is a real king and he needs religious authority. And so he builds up uh, a real temple. Kings chapter 8 from verse 10 to 13 we hear, And when the priest came out of that holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. By tell, For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord said that he would dwell in this darkness. I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. So the idea is that now the tabernacle, which is mobile, is brought from the various kind of local temples into a single central temple, and that is in Jerusalem. So this act of creating a central temple both centralizes religion and centralizes um, political authority. Jerusalem becomes important. It was important politically, but now it is important religiously as well. And the temple becomes the heart of early Israelite religion. It is where the tabernacle is kept, the kind of presence of God, the, the holy and divine glory of God is kept within the holy of holies, and the temple becomes the site of uh, animal sacrifice. It is the main purpose of the temple is sacrifice, blood sacrifice and in particular. In that way, early Israelite religion reflects the religions of the Near East. It's very similar to Mesopotamian religion, very similar to Egyptian religion. In 586 CE, it is, a, it is destroyed. It is destroyed by the Assyrians. The Assyrians are this Mesopotamian dynasty. It's, they're very violent. They're very imperialistic. They expand out. They see this kingdom of, of Judah. They take Israel first. The kingdom of Israel is taken and exiled out, but the kingdom of Judah with Jerusalem remains for a little bit. But they are eventually taken and the Jews are sent into exile and they destroy the temple.
While in exile, we start to see the language of a homeland emerge in the Bible, particularly in the Psalms, the kind of language of weeping by the rivers, yearning for Zion. This is a unique experience of a people in the diaspora. Anyone who has had family that has been forced from their homeland, whether by war or destruction, will, will sympathize with this kind of feeling. If you've ever grown up as an immigrant, specifically as an immigrant whose families are refugees or fleeing from war, you'll have this language of homeland, the motherland within your family, within your culture. Afghans talk about it. A lot of other people talk about it, the kind of homeland that they desire. And that's because diasporas create homelands. Homelands become central to someone's identity. We may be different. We may have different uh, beliefs. We may have different practices, but we all have one thing in common, a homeland. And so as that homeland in that starts to develop in the imagination, and it is an imagined homeland because the real history is that there was two separate kingdoms and they didn't always get along and Jerusalem wasn't always the capital and the temple wasn't always as important as it was. But in the experience of exile, it takes on a central role. It becomes part and parcel of the identity. Eventually, the Persian emperor, the Persian king, conquers the Assyrian territory, Sidious, also known as Cyrus the Great, um, very famous a Persian king, and he gives an edict, which is written down not only in the Bible, but also in a cylinder known as the Cyrus Cylinder, in which he tells the Jewish people, the early Israelites, that they can return back to their homeland and rebuild their temple. They do so, and this is called the Second Temple. But again, the relationship with the temple is complicated. Right after the Persians comes Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great's empire falls apart, and it's left in the hands of the Seleucids. And the Seleucids are not particularly friendly to the Jewish people. And they literally raise uh, the temple. They don't destroy it, but they pillage it. They take all of its gold, everything. This is done under Antiochus IV. And this is a very kind of tense moment for the for the Jewish people, right? Here they are. They, they've, they've just come back. They've gotten back from exile. They've rebuilt the temple. They've been living there for centuries again. It looks like God's on their side once more. And then all of a sudden, this mofo Antiochus IV comes about. And Antiochus IV literally invades their sacred space. Just imagine how violating that is. It's like, you know, some, it's, like the, it's like someone burglarizing your home. You know what I mean? Like they're breaking in. There's a really sense of anxiety about it. And this leads to different responses to the temple. Eventually, the Romans in, in the early uh, BCE conquer uh, Jerusalem, and it becomes part of the Roman territories. And in the in that time period, from the Seleucids to the Romans, Jews start to develop a different relationship to the temple. For some people, the temple remains central, and this is the, a group of people known as the Sadducees. For the Essenes, the temple is corrupt. It Because Antiochus has, has stepped into it, because there's this Hellenic influence, no longer will they accept the temple. And so the Essenes go out into the desert. Uh, of, they develop their own community known as the community of Qumran. And they say, you know what? F it all. The world is going to come to an end anyways. The apocalypse is nigh. And then there's a third group that emerges known as the Pharisees. And the Pharisees go, okay, we'll still worship at the temple, but we're going to bring the temple home. It's not the temple that is important, but rather... Us following the law, Mosaic law, uh, Halakat law, what eventually becomes rabbinic law, 
at home. And so we see how the identities of the Jewish people start to uh, change as a result of their historical experience. For the Sadducees, the temple is important. For the Essenes, the temple is no longer important. And for the Pharisees, the temple is brought home. This is part of a long process that eventually culminates in the fact that, that Jewish identity survives the destruction of the temple. In 66 CE, there's a series of rebellions known as the Jewish Roman-Jewish Wars. Um, and this leads to the destruction of the temple. Yet again, the second temple is destroyed in 70 CE by Titus. The result of this is that Judaism, once more, has to deal with the fact that it does not have a temple, that the homeland has been destroyed. And out of this emerges Rabbinic Judaism. And Rabbinic Judaism is about living the kind of temple life, the laws and regulations of the temple, at home. This process, post-destruction of, of the temple, produces a secondary movement in addition to rabbinic Judaism, and that is Messianism. Uh, Messianism is this idea that there is going to be a savior that emerges that will help us retake our kingdom. This is most famously seen in the Bar Kokhba revolt in 132 CE. But as a result, yet again, the Romans come in, suppress the revolt, and scatter Jews to the winds. And what they basically say is that Jews are no longer allowed in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is no longer your homeland. Jerusalem is no longer sacred to you. And so Jews respond to this. Rabbinic Judaism, the heart of Jewish religion, ends up not in Jerusalem, but in Galilee. And it remains in Galilee for hundreds upon hundreds of years, up until about 600 CE, maybe even 700 CE. So we're talking about a, a series of 700 years. The heart of Jewish identity is not Jerusalem, it's Galilee. In fact, the rabbinic Jew, uh, the, the rabbis of Judaism or rabbinic Judaism is so clear on Jerusalem not being important that they also reject Messianism. They say there's a very famous rabbi, Rabbi Yohan ben Zaki, who says, if you hold a sapling in your hand and someone says to you, the Messiah is here, then plant the sapling first, then welcome the Messiah. In other words, saying, don't trust the Messiahs. Continue to live your life. This goes part and parcel with the kind of move, shift away from Jerusalem and the temple as their identity and rabbinic Judaism, the law becoming part of Jewish identity. So Galilee becomes the heart of Jewish identity. Eventually, Jerusalem comes to the hands of the Christians. Now, Christians have a really tense relationship with Jerusalem. On one hand, Jerusalem is the site upon which Jesus was killed. We see this in Matthew 32 and 37 and 38. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones who are sent to E. See, your house is left to you desolate. So there's this idea that Jerusalem is a place that, that, that kills prophets. We aren't fond of Jerusalem. And early Christian religion, which emerges as, out of that kind of matrix of the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Pharisees, is a reformed Jewish movement that eventually breaks with Judaism completely. It breaks with it as a result of the kind of rebellions and, and revolutions that I discussed. The Bar Kokhba revolt and the early Jewish Roman wars, they completely separate themselves uh, from Judaism and go, we're not like them. Oh, Romans, please don't kill us. We're not like them. And they end up aligning themselves more and more with Rome. Even though Rome is oppressing them as well, they're trying to say, we're separate from those Jews over there, even though it starts off as a Jewish reform movement. So in, in the 300s, when Constantine finally accepts Christianity as one of the major official religions of the Roman Empire, he issues the Edict of the Milvian Bridge, he retakes uh, Jerusalem. Uh, 
And he reimagines Jerusalem not as a Jewish city or having a Jewish past or the site of the temple, but rather as a Christian city. Uh, Eusebius writes in his life of Constantine the kind of story of excavating Jerusalem from the rubble because up until this point Jerusalem remained as a as a place in in ruins and desolation and that Jews weren't even allowed there the Romans had banned them and he writes and as one layer after another was laid bare the place which was beneath the earth appeared Directly as it was done, contrary to all expectations, the venerable and hallowed monument of our Savior's resurrection became visible. Thereupon the emperor gave orders that a house of prayer worthy of God should be erected around the cave of salvation and on a scale of rich and imperial costliness. This becomes the Anastasis Church. That is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And so Jerusalem is kind of reimagined, not as the heart of, of Jewish identity, but as a sign of Christian victory, imperial Christian victory. That is Constantine's version of Christianity. Not the Christianity that emerged post-rebellions, uh, not the Christianity that emerged post-Jesus, but the Christianity that really starts to develop an imperial ideology, a, 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 an ideology of victory, of conquering and conquest in the world. Jerusalem becomes a symbol of that, and it becomes very, very important. But the reality is that Jerusalem kind of is in the middle of multiple empires. And even though Constantine purifies it quite violently and rebuilds it as a Christian city, it goes back and forth between major empires. In 614, about 300 years after it starts to become a Christian city and a site of Christian pilgrimage, the Persians capture Jerusalem and they destroy the church of, of martyrdom and other churches. And they even take the true cross, the, the kind of remnants of the true cross with them. 614, the Persians of the Sasanian Empire go, you know what? We're going to conquer this shit. In 629, Heraclius of Byzantine, of the Byzantine Empire, retakes Jerusalem from the Persians, and supposedly he uh, restored uh, or takes back the true cross. Now, what's interesting is when the Persians conquered it, they allowed Jews to return. When the Christians conquered it, they renewed the ban against Jews. So that once more, it was about purifying it of its Jewish identity. In 629, the Jews were banned yet again from Jerusalem, as they had been for hundreds of years under under first the Romans and then by the, the Christians. This particular moment, this kind of back and forth between the empires, is something that I've talked about in our first season when I talk about the Red Sea Wars and the rise of Islam, because it's in that context that Islam arises, this battle between two major empires, and a kind of rejection of the kind of the way that the imperial loyalties and allegiances have divided up the world. And indeed, the Quran has a verse that's very cognizant of this kind of back and forth. Surah Rome, verses 1 through 6, begins, Alif Lam Mim, the Romans have been defeated in the nearest and lowest land, but they and their defeat will overcome. Within nine, three to nine years, Allah, to Allah belongs the command before and after, and then on that day the believers will rejoice in the victory of Allah. He gives victory to whom he wills, and he is the exalted in might, the merciful. It is the vow of Allah. Allah does not fulfill, does not fail to fulfill his promises but most people do not know so there's this believed to be this kind of prophecy and the persians eventually the romans eventually do reconquer jerusalem now one can argue oh well look you know the faithful argue this is a prophecy it came true historians will look at this and go this is instead really clear acknowledgement of the cognizance of this kind of back and forth that there was this shifting between uh rome and and um 
the Persian Empire. Why Jerusalem, though? Why do, the, do Muslims care about Jerusalem and which empire controls it? Well, uh, Jerusalem is believed to be sacred, and it is sacred because of its Jewish history. Islam saw, sees itself as not separate from Judaism and Christianity, the Abrahamic tradition, but building upon that Abrahamic tradition. It seizes and embraces that Abrahamic tradition. What a lot of people don't know is that the Qibla, that is the direction that Muslims prayed, was originally towards Jerusalem because that was the direction that Jews prayed. Jews prayed in the direction of Jerusalem, even though they were banned, and Muslims joined them because they saw each other as part of the same tradition. And it isn't until when they, the, after the Hijra, the immigration to the forced immigration to Medina, that eventually the Qibla is changed to Mecca, to the Kaaba. It is also reputed to be the site of the, the Isra and the Miraj, which is the night's journey. This was uh, a, a reputed to be the site where Muhammad ascended into heaven so muhammad is this this either a vision or a kind of mystical experience in which uh, the angel gabriel approaches him with this celestial mount uh, later referred to as baruch this kind of divine being upon which he uh, uh, rides crosses this vast distance and goes to some place called the furthest masjid the, the furthest mosque there he meets various prophets and ascends through the heavens where god gives him the command to to pray a certain number of times of a day and along the way he meets all these different prophets and he comes back and he tells his experience to the people um, and this is attested to in the quran in surah 17 glory be to him who carried his servant by night from the holy shrine to the distant shrine the precincts of which we have blessed and we may that we might show him some of our signs he is the one who hears the one who sees so what's here, what's clear is that there is this kind of vision, this mystical experience. What isn't clear is what is the furthest shrine. So Al-Quds, the Arabic word for Jerusalem, is actually not in the Quran. But that is the common consensus that he went to Jerusalem. But the Quran itself doesn't say whether it was Jerusalem or not. Now, why should it be Jerusalem? Why not Mecca? Why not Medina? Why not any of the other cities? Why does he go to Jerusalem? Well, for the exact same reason that he meets the other prophets. Because Islam embraces the kind of Abrahamic tradition. It's Jerusalem is holy because it's holy to Jews and Christians. Because Islam is part of that tradition. That Muhammad is part of a line of prophets. That Jerusalem is part of a line of, of, of holy cities tied to prophecy. And so it's not a in Islam, it's not a rejection of the past. In Christianity, it is the character of Jesus, but the pure rejection of the Jewish heritage that makes Jerusalem sacred. For Islam, it's the opposite. It's the acceptance of both the Jewish and Christian nature of Jerusalem that also simultaneously makes it Islamic. So Islam sees it in this layered, entangled fashion. Jerusalem is Christian, Jerusalem is Jewish, and as a result of that, it is also Islamic. But it isn't until really Ibn Ashaq that we have the first clear evidence that uh, the distant shrine, which is known as Masjid al-Aqsa, is actually Jerusalem. It's Ibn Ishaq, who is one of the earlier biographers of Muhammad and commentators. Uh, he dies roughly in 770 uh, CE, I believe, that identifies that Jerusalem was the destination of Muhammad's night journey. As a result of that, this is, becomes really important part of, uh, Jerusalem becomes an important part of the fabric of Muslim identity. Under the Rashidun Khalaf, uh, the first four caliphs, uh, especially accepted in Sunni Islam, uh, Jerusalem 
Jerusalem is conquered in 638 CE. Now, one of the first things that they do is they allow Jews to return to Jerusalem. This is the first time that Jews are able to enter Jerusalem without any real restriction. This is the first time that there is a very clear policy of saying, no, this is a city that belongs to everybody, a city that is layered. And the Muslims accepted Jerusalem as the third holiest place. This is after Mecca, after Medina. Jerusalem is important. It is important because of its history, because of its shared roots, and it is important because of the night journey and because of its connection to the prophets that Muslims, Jews, and Christians all accept. And this early period is kind of interesting. During the early period, the caliphates, uh, during the early period of the caliphates, these communities, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim, lived in relatively ha relative harmony. Now it's clear there was a hierarchy. Muslims were at the top. Jews and Christians came after, but they were a protected minority. They were a minority, but a protected minority. And the supremacy of Muslims in Jerusalem was clear by the building of the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is a beautiful, beautiful architectural building designed to demonstrate the kind of victory of Islam in Jerusalem. But... There's also harmony. This is not like the Christian period, and it certainly isn't like the Assyrian period, and it certainly isn't like the Roman period. And instead, they live side by side with one another. In fact, a lot of the holy sites are shared. People participate in one another's pilgrimages. People participate in one another's rites. So the tomb of Samuel is a place where Muslim and Jews go alike. Christians, Jews, and Muslims go to similar or identical sites. Their festivals are almost the same. Jews participate in Muslim festivals and Muslims participate in Jewish festivals. But the reality is that the importance of Jerusalem isn't fixed, right? The Quran doesn't mention Jerusalem. And it's a period of time, a kind of process before Jerusalem emerges as part of the imagination of the uh, Muslim history. In 685, um, we, saw, we see that Khalif Abdul Malik really pushes Jerusalem as a site of pilgrimage. 685 is also during the time of the Second Fitna. You can go and listen to the first uh, uh, season of Head on History to learn more about that Fitna, the kind of civil war within Islam. And what happens during that civil war is that Mecca and Medina are under the, under the, under the control of a contender, a guy named Ibn al-Zubair. And so Mecca and Medina, the very heart of Islam, is under a completely separate Khalif. So Abdul Malik needs to counter this. And what he does is he creates this literature known as Faidal al-Quds, that is the praise of Jerusalem, in which he basically tells people, look, if you come to Jerusalem, it's just as going, good as going to Mecca. If you make pilgrimage to Jerusalem, your prayers will be accepted. It'll be like you've done a thousand prayers. And so it is because of this kind of political, geopolitical experience reality, that Jerusalem is once more put forth as an important city for Muslims. The same thing with Judaism, right? Judaism, Jerusalem becomes important in early Israelite religion because Solomon is consolidating power, right? And it becomes important for Christians because Constantine is recreating this kind of victorious Christian image. And for Muslims, it becomes important yet again. It's not to say that there isn't theological or religious reasons. There are. But the theological and religious reasons also coincide with the lived historical reality. In about 705, the Dome of the Rock is finally built, and it has verses in there. And the verses mention Jesus, and they mention Mary, and that's an indication yet again. Right there in the Dome of the Rock, this beautiful architecture that's meant to represent the victory of Islam in Jerusalem, you have mentions of Jesus and Mary, of the holiness and sacredness of Jerusalem being layered, of being shared and integrated and entangled. Here is the Dome of the Rock, the holiest, or the third holiest shrine in, in Islam, and it has references to Christian 
figures to Jewish figures. And the Jerusalem remains mostly in the hands of Muslims for a period of time. It goes from hands to hand. Originally, the, uh, the Abbasid Caliphate uh, runs it. They lose it to a kind of a Turkish bay that, that uh, and that's bay, B-E, not B-A-E, not bay as in salt bay or, or, or she's my bay. Not that type of bay, a different type of bay. But a Turkish ruler, a local ruler, kind of runs Jerusalem for a period of time. And then the Abbasids reconquer. But it kind of goes back and forth. And this is the lived history for thousands, of, for hundreds of years, right? From about 600 to the 11th century or so, to the 12th century. People live in relative harmony, and it's entangled in... In 1099, the Crusaders come. And for the Crusaders, Jerusalem becomes a reimagined place. The Crusaders were uh, Europeans that lived in a very violent time period. There were constant wars between the various uh, Christian states. And Pope Urban II calls for retaking of Jerusalem as a way of unifying Christendom. If Christendom can get unified in its conquest of Jerusalem, then the fighting in Europe will end. And indeed, there is this very famous phrase that a God's holy war, God's war in the Holy Land, brings God's peace in Europe. So, in fact, it is to bring peace and unity in Europe that the Crusaders launch their kind of attack. And there's this popular imagination of, of Jerusalem being captured and held hostage by the Saracens, by the Muslims. And it had been like that for ages, and they had to now reconquer Jerusalem. Now, the reality is that Muslims had ruled in Jerusalem for probably about 700 years at this point in time. Why hadn't the Christians attempted to retake it before that? Well, that's because there's a reason why. Um, the, 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 the Muslims were pushing up against the Byzantine Empire, and the Byzantine Empire was feeling the tension. And so uh, Emperor Alexius actually calls out to the, the Holy Roman, to the Holy Pope, and says, Look, you and I may have our differences. You may be part of Western Christendom. I may be part of Eastern Christendom. But the Muslims are right on our doorsteps. We have to do something about it. And so Jerusalem kind of comes back into the popular magic imagination yet again for kind of political reasons for uh, an alliance with byzantine and more importantly to bring some form of unity to create some form of a, a political solidarity in europe that can then be launched and so in 1099 the 1095 the crusade is called by 1099 the people march into jerusalem and they re take the land. And it is a massive bloodbath. It kills both Muslims and Jews and Eastern Christians alike. And the Christian Cru- the, the Crusader kingdom of Jerusalem is established. This Christian kingdom is restricts pilgrimage and movement for non-Christians. Yet again, Jews are banned from Jerusalem. But here's the thing. Now, you can go and listen to my Crusades episode from season one to learn more about the kind of history and also for some citations about the Crusades. That even in that moment, here's the thing, even in the moment of the clearest violence between these two religions, between Christianity and Islam, Crusaders attacking Jerusalem, they still managed to have interaction and lived with one another. Osama bin Munkith is a very famous uh, Saracen knight and lord, and he writes about his experience of visiting Jerusalem. That is, that the Crusaders allowed him to come into Jerusalem so that he could pray at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, so that he could experience Jerusalem. That tells us something, right? That even in the moment where, where Christians wanted to pu- literally purify Jerusalem with blood, 
right? Literally purified with blood. That they still, the lived experiences of people was more of a shared history. And under Salahuddin, Muslims reconquered Jerusalem in 1187 CE. And once more, Jews and Muslims returned to Jerusalem. Jews were welcomed back into Jerusalem so that they could pray. Um, and again, this kind of poetry the Faidal al-Quds becomes a key component of reintegrating re Jerusalem in the Muslim memory. Muslims saw these crusaders come in and retake and take this land from them. And it was kind of this moment of like, what the F? Who are these people and where do they come from? And so the poets and, and, and various scholars would write about Jerusalem as being held ca captive and that she was a woman that needed to be liberated and purified and, and taken away from this oppressive and tyrant, tyrant ruler. And Jerusalem becomes this kind of language about Jerusalem, of needing to recapture Jerusalem in the same way that unified the crusaders and became part of their kind of political mission, so too did it become part of the political mission of the Muslim world. It brought about a new idea idea of jihad to defend territorially the Muslim lands. So they reconquered Jerusalem and brought it back into Muslim imagination. And even though, yet even though Muslims conquered Jerusalem and once more people interacted and intermingled with one another, the importance of Jerusalem was never particularly fixed, either for the Jews or for the Muslims. It waxed and it waned. During the time of Salahuddin, it was of central importance. They had to purify it with rose water and they rededicated the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But during the time of the Mamluks, who came after the, the uh, Salahuddin's dynasty of the Ayyubids, the Mamluks weren't interested in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem fell into disrepair. Same with the earlier Fatimids. They were not particularly interested in Jerusalem. And so you find that there are certain times where Jerusalem is really holy, and it needs to be put in the central. Those are periods of, of, of tension, periods of political strife during the Crusades, during the reconquering of, of Jerusalem, etc. And there are other times in which it's not nearly as important or central to the identity of Jews or Muslims, or Christians. After the Crusades, Christians no longer are thinking about reconquering Jerusalem. They go to Jerusalem for pilgrimage, but it's not central to their identity. And it's the same for Jews. In fact, for most Jews, the, their homeland wasn't Jerusalem. It was Al-Andalus, Muslim Spain. Some of the greatest Muslim uh, Jewish philosophers come out of that time period. Uh, Maimonides, Moses Maimonides, comes out of Muslim Spain, Al-Andalus. And it isn't until the Reconquista that is the retaking of Al-Andalus in Spain by the Christians, that once more Jews turn and return to Jerusalem. During the time of, of, of Al-Andalus, Jews lived in Spain. The majority of Jews lived in Spain. And only a handful of people lived in Jerusalem, even though they were, they were allowed to return. In 1267 CE, the rabbi, rabbis started to once more talk about Jerusalem. Nicomanides, one of the most famous uh, rabbis at the time, made aliyat to Jerusalem. That is, he made pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And when he arrived there, he found only a handful of Jewish families. That's a testament to the fact that Jerusalem wasn't always central to Jewish identity. But the experience of the Reconquista had done something. Remember, after the experience of exile into into Babylon, the Babylonian exile, home, the Jerusalem became homeland. It was when you started to create the image and imagination of a homeland, right? The experience of being in a diaspora. Well, now we have a mirror event happening with the Reconquista. Yet again, Jews were driven out of their homeland, this time uh, Muslim Spain, and so they needed to reimagine a homeland. And for them, that became Jerusalem. It became once more integrated into the fabric of Jewish identity.
because post-Reconquista, Jews needed something by which they can return to, something that they can call their home. In other words, the loss of Al-Andalus is what necessitated the shift and return to Jerusalem. And that is where we start to see the beginnings of early Zionism. Eventually, Zionism, Zionism is mostly a 19th and 20th century development um, that goes, okay, well, we need a homeland. Where is this homeland going to be? Early Zionists like Herschel, etc. looked at Latin America, even Uganda at one point for a Jewish homeland. And it wasn't until kind of later debates that eventually they settled on, uh, on British Palestine uh, and Jerusalem. They drew upon these kind of older discourses from Nicomonides and others to bring Jerusalem and the Holy Land once more into Jewish identity. This again shows us how complicated this history is, that it's always it's not always continuous, that sometimes Jerusalem is important and sometimes it's not. But what's interesting is that these kind of discourses ignore that entangled, rooted history. Jerusalem remains in Muslim hands from the time that it is reconquered in 1187 all the way up to the 20th century. That is, that is hundreds of years, almost a thousand years of Muslim rule. Indeed, some of the greatest kind of achievements of Jerusalem come under the uh, the Ottomans. Uh, in the fifth, in 1536, it's the Ottoman Sultan Suleiman, known as Suleiman the Magnificent, who rebuilds Jerusalem. He erects its walls. He builds the city up because it had fallen into disrepair. The previous dynasties hadn't really done anything with it. And so he rebuilds it. He also allows the Jews to resettle in Jerusalem. He goes, Jews, please come back to Jerusalem. This was once your holy city. Come and live here. And he also issues what's known as a firman, that is a religious edict, in which he says that Jews are allowed to pray at the Western Wall. Now, that's interesting. When we look at this firman, the historian will go, well, what, why would you issue this edict? What does that tell us? The historian can read that edict, and it tells us that the Jews didn't pray at the Western Wall in large masses. That likely, before the Ottoman Empire, today we take the Western Wall as a kind of given, right? That people go and pray there. There's even, a, I mean, every president that's visited Israel goes in to the Western Wall. There's one where Obama's there. Even, even Trump has, has visited there during his Middle East tour. But the Western Wall really comes around during the 15, 1536, that before that, Jews prayed either at the gates of the Haram al-Sharif, that is the gates of the Temple Mount, or they prayed at the uh, uh, olive trees, at the Garden of Olive Trees. So there was, a, there was kind of two separate sites of prayer, but it was the Ottomans working with Jewish authorities and rabbis that brought the Western Wall into religious uh, imagination, brought it back into the Jewish imagination. And it is from that Ottoman time period on, even earlier, that Muslims and Jews and Christians all live in Jerusalem and see it as holy to one another and holy to themselves. This is most famously uh, seen in the, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the holiest shrine in Christendom. It is believed to be the place in which Jesus was buried. But what a lot of people don't know is that it's actually a Muslim family that opens the door of the Holy Sepulchre. It's the Nusiba family who has who gets the keys from another Muslim family and then unlocks the door every morning. This is the arrangement that was established during the time of the Rashidun Khalifs and then was reaffirmed by the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire gave them their official document that says, the, you are the caretaker of the Holy Church. Here it is, Christianity's holiest site, and the doors are opened by a Muslim. 
because Muslims view the site as sacred to Christians and Muslims and Jews. And it's the same thing. These are these communities see each other in lived experiences. Does that mean that there's no tension, that there's no fighting? There absolutely is fighting. There's a lot of fighting. But there's also integratedness. There's also entanglements. These are communities that lived side by side with one another, not only in tolerance, like they didn't just tolerate one another, but they intermingled with one another. They entangled one another. And this history is, is kind of forgotten in the modern era. After the establishment of the state of Israel, um, Jerusalem was originally during the original UN partition plan that divided up the, the Holy Land. And this isn't a history of the Holy Land. This is just a history of of, of um, the Jerusalem. Maybe I'll do a history of, of Israel and Palestine in some other episode. But just Jerusalem. Jerusalem was originally planned to be an international city. That neither Israel nor Palestine would run or own Jerusalem. And why would it be international? One, in order to keep the peace. But two, as a recognition of this kind of, the fact that Jerusalem was a global city, that it was a city of Jews and Christians and Muslims, and that people came and went, that it had waxed and waned throughout history, that it had risen and it had fallen. And it was meant to be that re recognition. But during the, the, the war, the Arab-Israeli war, Israel fully conquered and annexed Jerusalem, including East Jerusalem. And East Jerusalem was for Palestinians. What the idea was that they would divide up Palestine. Western Jerusalem would become the capital of Israel, and East Jerusalem, along with the West Bank, would be part of the Palestinian state with uh, East Jerusalem as its center. During the Arab-Israeli War, it is Jordan that actually uh, runs uh, East Jerusalem for a long period of time, and they, they are the because it is the Hashemite kingdom there that runs the Haram al-Sharif, the, the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. But eventually it is annexed by Israel, and for since that time, for about 60 years plus, it has been administered, even though in, in by, it has been administered by the Israelites, by, by the Israeli people, even though um, it's not recognized by the international community, it's seen as an international city, and that it's part of the kind of imagination of the Palestinian people. Both... Uh, the Israelis and Palestinians see Jerusalem as part of their national identity, as part of who they are. And we see that this roots comes from something much older. The problem, however, is with these national discourses, and I think why some people have some problems with Trump's kind of decision, is that it may score, score some political points, but it also erases that history of coexistence. People forget that Muslim holy sites and Jewish holy sites are one and the same. That it is this shared history that makes Jerusalem sacred. That is, this history is entangled and intermingling. And it comes out of a mixture of, of, of people who are living side by side with one another. Of categories that are not always clear. We will say Muslim, Jew, and Christian, but those categories and boundaries are not always fixed. Muslims lived alongside Christians and they did very Christian things and Christians lived along Muslims and they did very Muslim things and there are people there's figures in history that are kind of like Muslim Jewish and Christian but we're not quite sure who they are um, so people's identities weren't some fixed but nationalism which is really obsessed with borders tries to erect the borders between those identities and it does so by trying to purify Jerusalem of its holy 
and sacred past. It tries to purify this shared history in, in a kind of sort of attempt to create a purified, unified, singular national identity. And that is the history that we're left with today. That is what the contemporary experience of Jerusalem is. There's much more that's going to be developed by this. I'll probably do a whole uh, episode on the Crusades and the history of the Holy Land, but that'll be for a future time. This was just a, uh, a head-on history special. Hopefully it was useful to you. Hopefully you get to see the entangled history and some of the complicated issues about Jerusalem. And you can also see that Jerusalem is not a continuous history, that it waxes and wanes, that it is sometimes important and sometimes not, and that there is geopolitics and religion that go hand in hand with one another. I'm going to end it there for now. Let me know what your thoughts are. You can hit me up on social media at A-A-O-L-O-M-I on Twitter or Instagram. Use the hashtag head on history. I would love to hear from you, but definitely watch this space. Next week, we'll be returning to our regular podcast. Until then, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. Thank you.